This is Van Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air for the first time with Michelle Hammonds, an executive and high-performance coach. So how are you doing today? I am great. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for hosting me today on our episode. Well, it's fun to talk to people, and we are live on our Facebook channel, YouTube, and Twitch. We're live right now. And uh, I want to let people know that we're also a featured podcast on Newsly. You can check that out later. And that's an audio platform. And if you check that out, you can use our coupon code of uh, of Ghost. And uh, if you do that, you'll actually be able to check that out for like 30 days without having to pay on that in that, that um, channel. And again, we're a featured podcast there. We always like to mention that. But what we're going to talk about today is that we have your website up, creativeplaybook.com. Don't have to worry about remembering that. That will be fully clickable on all the podcast platforms that we're on. But we're going to talk about um, the idea of leading from your creative edge, unpacking your creative strength. That's kind of our focal point today. And I, again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So one of the things we like to ask folks when we have them come on is the first thing we ask now nowadays is um, like how um, like what motivates you and why do you do what you do? And maybe kind of tell that story and we yeah thank you that's such a great question so one uh my journey to becoming a coach is probably you know a journey of a lifetime really and what i love most about what i get to do today and for my job which doesn't even really feel like a job is to really unpack the potential that sits within someone and to help them see the things they can't see and become who they're meant to be in the world from their purpose and so we do that in a variety of ways through the coaching process but um that it's it's the highest calling i think you can have as a job to really show up and serve and help people every day and um it's so energizing because every one of us has our own story our own unique footprint our own path to take in this life and so um that's it just makes my job so rewarding yeah, it's interesting because I think um, like being a teacher or a mentor or, you know, being somebody that's like an advocate for people, uh, I think it's really a powerful place to be because like you're not just pushing your own your own self, your, your own um, talent. You're actually, you know, passing it forward. You're, you're, you're actually let, allowing other people to shine. And one thing I think that that's always an inspiring thing for me is, uh, you know, what made you want to do that? Well, I think part of it is I've always been able to help people with their confidence and their courage. Um, just, you know, cheering people on like enthusiasm has always been one of my kind of common threads in my life. But I think when you get into conversations with people and, and they're talking about a dream or they're talking about a goal or maybe something they want to try and you can be the person that kind of cheers them on on the sideline and you know this like what i do today is like what i call coaching for adulting <laughs> but most of us are familiar with coaches because we hire them for our kids right so that they become better at different things that, as they're growing up and so i think when you can sit at the sidelines with someone and really see their their inner beauty and their skills and their abilities come to life in a whole new way um I mean, it's it's just energizing to be in that space with someone, and that happens through a variety of ways. And creative creativity, we all have it. Some of us don't believe we have it, but we all really do have it. Um, and so that's why I love this topic. 
Yeah, creativity is funny. It's a funny thing because a lot of people, uh, they have this like imposter syndrome. And I've even met, you know, as a producer, I always have to fight against that with artists. Because like a lot of times if you're working with somebody, uh, they, they'll either try to, they, they, you know, they've looked at what you do as a producer and they try to mimic like you. Like, like well, there's already fam electric mm -hmm. like ghost stuff out there. I don't need you to do that. I, I want to hear you. And so my, my, my always, when I try to go to people and say, like, show me the song that you're scared to show anybody. Don't mm -hmm. show me that you can clone Beyonce or Taylor Swift or somebody like that. Show me who you are. Because I, what, what's interesting to me is I like to bring out that uniqueness that that individual has. And I think that's your edge. And a yes. lot of times people don't think that's their edge. They're, they're, they're like scared to be vulnerable. They're scared to be a thing. They want to clone what's popular or what's hip. And it's like, well, you know, that's probably the wrong track. It's like, you need to take what you do and that will become hip because like nobody else is you. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. And, to, you know, it takes courage to be ourselves. It takes courage to be our authentic self. And um, one of the things that I think is so important is when we think about uh, imposter syndrome, right? We all experience it at some level, but if you're not leaning into that just a little bit, then you're probably not being as edgy and being who you are meant to be. And so if you're, if you're feeling like you're not experiencing that, it may be because you're not leaning into it enough, because if you're doing things outside your comfort zone, you should feel like, mm -hmm. I don't know how this is going to turn out. We might have some ideas, but it doesn't have to be perfect, right? We, artists create masterpiece that are their own yeah. works of art. And so, like you said, like, don't be like someone else because it's mainstream or it's what's popular now. It's like, what's in your heart and soul, that deep inner artist calling that up and out of you is where it's scary, right? Because it, it, you're having to put yourself and your ideas, your thoughts, your lyrics, your music, the sound that comes out of you into a work that ultimately holds your name on it. And so it, that's what I think makes um, creatives really unique in the world is that like a lot of people in business and other types of leadership, they either sell someone's product that is produced somewhere else, but artists, they sell their own work, right? They put their own yeah. name on it and then they go out and they make it worthy of something in the world. And so there is a deep, I believe there's a deeper, deeper level of um, what I call a creative insecurity for artists than maybe others because we actually do produce what we sell. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing is like, because that vulnerability, you know, because you take it personal. Like I, I know a lot of us, oh, I don't take it personal, but they read all the reviews. And if somebody gives them a bad review, they, they kind of like, oh, they, it makes them have a, a downer. Because, you know, they want everybody, everybody wants everybody to love you, right? But, you know, yeah. the thing is like, as soon as you, it's like the bell curve. Like the thing is creative people are kind of on the edges of the bell curve. Yeah. And so what happens is, you're on the leading edge, right? So a lot of times you push something. He's like famous, like Miles Davis. He was like the standard bearer for bebop. And then mm -hmm. suddenly he switches to fusion. And a lot of people in jazz said, what, what's that? Like, like, you shouldn't do that. Like jazz mm -hmm. is bebop. And so he got a lot of resistance. And same thing with like a Dylan. When he yeah. went electric, people yelled Judas. They like booed. They said they hated it. But he kept on doing it. And even in a concert, there's a famous uh, tape where he says, they're saying that he's terrible. And he's like, well, I don't believe you. Dylan actually responded to the crowd, say, I don't believe 
that I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing. And he kept on going when people were booing. He kept on, because yeah. he realized that that's where his head, where his heart was. He wanted to go, he wanted to go electric. Yeah. And a man, I mean, and the I world think about wanted that to be scene. Yeah. They wanted him to be Arlo. That, that particular <laughs> scene, you know, the intensity of the energy of an audience that, uh, you know, receives an artist's um, performance, when we're talking about performing art, is there's energy exchange between the performer and the audience for each person. So it's, it's like, you know, sometimes a 2,000 to 1 or 10,000 to 1 or 100,000 to 1 ratio of energy from the crowd coming to the artist. And um, so I can only imagine like the in, even staying true to yourself, right? And with the age of the internet, you're going to have people who don't appreciate or like what you do. And we just have to come to this conclusion that we're not for them, right? As a coach, I deal with this all the time. It's like, but that one person that wrote a review that wasn't favorable, maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe they don't never even listen to anything that you've produced, right? Uh, they just have an opinion that showed up in your world uh, that we want to try to fence out, right? And set boundaries around because you're going to have naysayers and we can learn from those yeah. people. Those That's a learning experiment, but it doesn't, it shouldn't take us away from our true authentic self, like this example that you just used. It's something that when you feel it passionately enough, you're going to be able to shut out all the noise of the world to say, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing this. And that's where we get our defining artistry from, like all the all the people that we might think of as leading in their field. And there's all different levels of this. So it's not like there's one artist, right? There's yeah, yeah. different kinds of music, different genres, different styles, different instruments, different voices, different lyrics. I mean, there's so much variation that there's no way you could compare one to another. It's what resonates with the person that gets to receive the gift of the artist of what they've created. So. Uh, yeah, such an important call out when you think about imposter syndrome and what that looks like for someone. Because sometimes you're ahead of the curve, you know, like in 66, you know, Dylan is doing something that by 1974, the fans love the Rolling Thunder review. Like when people is a Dylan fanatic, like he was taking that sound and he suddenly the audience did, totally dug it. Yeah, they totally understood it. But in 66, they didn't understand it. Right. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're ahead of the curve and it's hard to be in like, like Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, like tons yeah. of producers heard that stuff in 66 too. And it didn't sell. And Lou mm -hmm. Reed didn't get big until like 74. And they're yeah. like, because he was ahead of the curve, you know, when the walk on the wild side come out, comes out because Bowie helped to support it. He's the same type of content he was doing in 66, except Bowie, kind of put the stamp on it and suddenly that generation and Bowie was a total fan of Lou. He didn't understand why people didn't dig it. So it, it suddenly started getting pushed because there are a lot of producers loved what he was doing. So sometimes you're in this, you know, you're ahead of the curve, you're ahead of your time. Yeah. And William Blake, the poet was ahead of his time. Nobody mm -hmm. even knew him in his time. <laughs> I think about um, like the red hot chili peppers as somebody who comes to mind when I was in high school, uh, so I'm dating myself here a little bit, but I had a math teacher who was a music fan. He loved music and he worked at a local radio station. And so he would incent us with like, if we do more math to, you know, become better and proficient at it, he would reward us with points that ultimately would lead to some concert tickets. And so this was when the Red Hot Chili Peppers were basically barely coming onto the scene. And he's like, man, they've got this fresh, you know, vibe. They've got this fresh music that's so alive. And uh, so 
I got introduced to the red hot chili peppers from my math teacher. Um, but then fast forward, I was listening to something about them uh, recently and, you know, it just, they've stayed true to who they are as a, as yeah, a band yeah. and as, as artists. And they really set themselves apart at that time coming into the, uh, into the music market and into the, the radio waves. And so there was something I was listening to about their story currently that they're still, they're still around, you know, 30, 40 years later yeah. doing their thing their way. And that's what a true art, the mark of a true artist is. I think when you say to heck with the rest of the world, I'm doing this my way and it, it's, I'm doing it for myself to give, right. As it comes from us to give to others and we don't get too concerned about what others think. doesn't mean we shouldn't take their, uh, shouldn't consider things, but it just yeah. means that we stay true to who we are. Well, it's so like the law of attraction. Now. Mm -hmm. And that's the, there's a law of attraction. What happens is like, if you're true to yourself, you could lose like certain parts of your audience or certain people, you know, people who are into you. If you change, right. If you, or you stay true to yourself and you don't just do what you, what everybody expects you to do. What happens is like some people will fall off and then new people will come in. A lot of times what happens though, is like, if you're scared to make that change, if you just keep on doing your number one song, you just keep on doing the one song, you one hit wonder, you never evolve. Yeah. And, and, and then like, you can stay, you can probably make a career doing that one song. You know, there's a lot of people who do that, but like, are you satisfied? Cause you keep on having to do something you did when you were 22 years old, you can yeah. be 45. You, you got to keep on rehashing something. And that's probably not where you are. So you might not be satisfied as a human being because you're not able to be, yourself <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and and those that become our fans right so i think about the 80s because there were so many one hit wonder amazing music was created with, with lots of different uh beats and and styles to it but there were a lot of one hit wonder songs from the 80s uh, that just happens to be a decade that that was really present in but when i think about um what our fan like kind of going back to when our fans might criticize us right we have to grow and evolve constantly. That's part of the growth mindset, the growth journey, growth as an artist. And yeah, we may change it up and, and some might not come in that journey with us, right? They might appreciate the old stuff or the first song or that hit song. Sometimes I've always, like anytime my practice has been when, cause I used to love to go to any, um, record store, which we don't really even go to anymore because of the technology. <laughs> yeah. But like, that was a thing for me. Like I was going yeah. weekly to get, and I was going to touch the album and feel yeah, it release and, and open it up every and, week, every and, week and, show and pull, up. Out the, pull out the little <laughs> cassette tape. I'm, I mean, like we're going all, albums, eight tracks, cassette tapes. We're really going down the journey here. Um, but to really read the lyrics and see the artwork and see all the creation that went into it. Often what I found for myself in that journey was I always liked the stuff that never got played, right? The stuff that yeah, I got to experience about an artist that maybe wasn't <laughs> the thing that they picked for the number one hit or the, that made the, the top 100 billboard or whatever it might have been. And so there's so much to an artist uh, or band when you're listening to an entire album that sometimes you on the radio, you only get just a preview of what they have created. Uh, and of course, producers like things that are going to produce hits. So we hear that, yeah. but so often you'll hear the deeper inner artist um, on the rest of the album, right? That's yeah. that, that's been my well, experience. That's a, well, that's the one thing I'm kind of lamenting today. Today's music is all kind of playlist. It's kind of like the 50s again. Everything's like singles. Everything's like playlist. People don't really consume albums unless you get these really 
big artist. Well, certain artists will get people to dive into their entire album. There's certain artists that still have album oriented music, like bands like Radiohead, you know, Taylor Swift will get people to listen to her whole album. There are artists that will get people to dive in. So it's not impossible, but a lot of people don't consume it. And I've always tried to tell people like an album is like a artist, like it's like a novel. So if you just hear the one song, you're not actually appreciating all the aspects of that artist. It's like reading the cliff notes yeah. for the book. You're not picking up who that artist really is because you're just getting like one shot of who they are. You know, it's just a glimpse. And, and it's like you're not taking the time to d- get a deeper read. Like I said, if you re- look at a book and just do read the cliff notes, it's like, well, did you read the book? <laughs> yeah, and that speaks to um, artists go through life too, right? <laughs> so I think about like when I talk with clients, we're always talking about um, how things change over time, like in your purpose, right? That's something we talk about. And when we're single, there's a purpose in that. When we get married, there's a purpose in that. When we have kids, there's a purpose in that. Um, There's all kinds of evolutions to our purpose. So what you're talking about, too, is like this glimpse of an artist in a song versus the glimpse of where they are in their life. Because often that wraps around um, very important things for an artist that they're trying to share with the world in their way, right, as they go through these different purposeful moments. Um, I think artists release albums based on where they're in the feeling of life. Um, and so you can learn a lot about, you know, so I think about when people have kids, a lot of times artists will write about this amazing experience of becoming a parent. Mm-hmm. And and the, some of the most beautiful songs that make us cry, right, are about these tender moments with new new kids in your life. And But there, you have to pay attention to that story, the whole book, as you said it, because if, if not, you might miss some of those deeper elements of, of who, that, who the artist is and what the message is uh, in, in its holistic form. Yeah, I mean, on Stevie Wonder, on the songs The Key of Life, he actually has his newborn uh, child's, like, voice. Yeah. On, and it's kind of, that he's a very life-affirming type of artist, and he does these really positivity is like mm-hmm. inherent in his music and songs of the key of life when you listen to that thing it's like a three album set it's this yeah. massive kind of album in the age of the album so that was like a big watershed moment where like everybody was waiting for it to come out i remember with my pop we we got it on a track and it was this it was an event I and mean, we would actually my dad was a total like record head he would sit down and let me, have me listen to Nat King Cole and Brubeck and Johnny Cash. And we just, like, TV's off. We just listen. That's probably why I got into music, because he was a big music fan. And we would listen to, like, everything. Like I said, mm-hmm. from Johnny Cash to Nat King Cole, yeah. Rolling Stones, Brubeck, you know, all the O-Town stuff. And that got an appreciation for the, for songwriting. And the, the fact that the lyrics and the structure and the production, it matters. Right. It's like it's art. Yeah. And and when you start to just realize it's art and it's not like I think a lot of people today, it's like they're at their Walkman, you know, jogging. They're not really taking music. It's like junk food music or something. They don't really appreciate the music. Yeah. I don't know if they're really listening. And mm-hmm. so that, that, that kind of goes toward other things. Like if you go in, in through life and you're you're not really listening. Right. Even when you go to listen to your friends or your wife or your spouse, are you really listening to what people say? 
or are you yes. trying to figure out what you had to respond to? <laughs> yeah, and this is such an important point you bring up because I like I think when we think about ambient noise, right? Just ambient noise if you walk outside your house. Most of us who if you just happen to live in the country, this might not be true. But if we live in a modern city, you're going to walk outside your house and just hear noise, traffic noise, airplane noise, road noise, you know, just the the hustle and bustle of life that goes on all around us. And so when I think of someone like Stevie Wonder, who is, you know, such an impactful artist and sensory wise, right, because he has a loss of vision, his it's enhanced, right? That's why his music, I think, is so mm -hmm. powerful, because one of his other sensory aspects is amplified because of that. That's my belief yeah. anyway. And um, but what we can what can happen is like what you're talking about. I mean, air, like when we were growing up, I was just explaining to my stepdaughter that we didn't like a Sony Walkman was a big deal, right? Like to be able to put yeah. headphones on. <laughs> and now we have all these amazing like earbuds and AirPods and all the stuff that that we can use. But it's important, like what we're putting in and we can either be deep listening, which is that deeper deeper feeling of the music or feeling of the message because we can listen to people speak to the same way or we can just be it can just be the ambient noise that we're we're tuned into and so sometimes there's a lot of media that comes at us like advertising type of media and it all that sometimes congests the message like if we're listening to radio versus earpods where we're very sp specific in what we're listening to um, but that can change if we're not tuned in, right? Really like getting ourselves ready for this listening experience, it changes it. And I think too, with modern uh, media, right? All of our multimedia opportunities that we have that we didn't have back when you and I were growing up. It's like you had a TV that you turned on sometimes, right? It, didn't, it didn't play in the background most everywhere you went, restaurants, hotels, wherever you find yourself, there's probably TVs within line of sight of where you are. So there was this deeper listening opportunity because there was less of that ambient noise. But I think you can still tune in and there's more powerful music being made today, I think, because one, people can get their self out in the world. Like I think of YouTube as a, a medium for artists that have a message from their home, it's coming from their heart. And all of a sudden they become known right they they like i think of the lead singer yeah, yeah. journey that, that they discovered his voice was like steve perry and um so there's these amazing things that help enable us but it also sometimes it can dilute it sometimes it can amplify it, it depends on how we yeah. utilize it and i think about the business model of music today i think artists have more ownership than they've had in some ways because but then i also think I used to go and, like I said, go to that store and buy that whole album and just experience the whole of it, where today I can get the option just to buy a song. And that seems so weird to me because I'm like, I've always bought the whole record wanting to know the whole story. Yeah. And then now I just can just get that one little slice of it. Right. And it's not as satisfying, but it also changed the business model and how we do, um, you know, listening to songs and their subscriptions. There's, it's just changed so much. Um, some of it for the better, some of it yeah. that we might it's just, use. It's been... Yeah, I mean, what the big problem has been for a lot of like emerging artists, like in the underground, where I I focus a lot with the in you know the emerging independent artists that are coming up from TikTok, from YouTube, from from uh, you know these um, mixtapes and all kinds of things. There's still a lot of good music that back in the day was on college radio. I remember listening to like REM, 
or the yeah. replacement or who's could do and you know bands like the um like you know nirvana was on a label called sub pop coming out of yeah. seattle they were really independent very small band but they blew up and i was always into i was kind of into them before they blew up and yeah. there was this place where you could hear that and it wasn't just the song you could hear the whole album they had albums before they blew up and today it's like it's a different model but there's a multimedia you could go and create something in TikTok as a bedroom producer and blow up and and it's there's a, and there's no gatekeeper like there used to be and so there right. used to be the labels were the gatekeeper and now you could come out of TikTok you could come out of some mixtape you you know but it, it's it's a, it's an interesting world there's different dynamics but you said that there is a lot of noise and there's so much music being produced that now it's guy created noise because there's so much music that's generated that people actually miss it. And so yeah. you need places like MTV what used to be a place that you could hear a lot of new stuff. And now it's just TV shows. Like yeah. you have to find it from other venues. But, you know, if you're looking for it, you can find it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that you brought up MTV because as you were talking, that was exactly where my mind went. Because I was probably, I don't know, I was in fifth or sixth grade when MTV came out. And I remember being glued to the TV. Like I knew every song, every video, because it was so amazing to me how they put the story with the artist and they told the story of the song. And it was this fascinating multi-sensory thing that we finally got the first glimpse of what the picture looked like, right? That went with the story of, of the writing or the, the, the sound. And yeah. I can remember thinking that was such an influential time in my life in music because I mean, it was just in the creative art that came out of the video making part of the story, right? There was so much great storytelling. Like, so I think of like uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, means that expanded yeah. version of that. And just all the different ways. Some of it was just like live concert type footage. Sometimes it was actually getting into the storytelling and, and bringing other dimensions to life. But yeah. I think we we don't get that too much today either, right? Yeah, like, we, the band, like the band, like Duran Duran. I mean, Duran Duran was a video band and they got big because they they chose to get like they had this. I have, I read their story. They had their story. It was like a documentary. Yeah. And they linked up with a guy that wanted to be a film director, but he couldn't get films done. And then he got connected to Duran Duran, the band. And he's like, wow, I have this opportunity to make these short films as music videos. Yeah. And that's why Duran Duran's videos were kind of like these mini films because their director was a brand new director that was trying to get into the film industry and said, well, I'm going to use this to kind of get in. And so he started building these big, big, like these videos were only four or five minutes, but they felt like films. And they were like, wow, you, they, you could do that. And people hadn't done that. People were just filming the band and he was making these stories. And I said, well, that's interesting. Yeah. For sure. And they, that, they, they got all these directors and it's a cross pollination of, of a film director, art directors and other photographers and stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. And when I think about the, the whole entire um, so coming from the professional photography background as part of my artistry, like it's a lot of technical stuff that goes on. And with videography, it's even lighting, scene sets, you know, camera ready, makeup, camera ready things that you have to be ready for fast forward to now, like back then you had crews of people that you had to have to produce just one thing. 
And today our modern technology is so amazing um, and so com it's complex, but it's simplified at the same time. The, some of the, the what you would used to have to do to produce something big, like I think of um, these amazing scenes that we now see with drone footage versus where you had to rent a helicopter and oh, get yeah. a camera artist or a videographer <laughs> yeah. and go up in a helicopter. Like you don't have to do that anymore. You can do it straight from yeah. a drone and you can go places you never could go before that the helicopter would have been too big, right? That's just an example. So it's like the storytelling opportunity is bigger than ever. And I, I'm curious as a producer, like where do you think when you're working with artists, they get stuck the most? Uh, well, a lot of artists get stuck today because we're kind of in this sampling kind of clone what's popular mode. We're less into in the singer-songwriter age. And what I was watching was like like Frank Zappa kind of said this thing that I thought was really poignant. He said, like, we were lucky in the, in the 60s and 70s that we had these record executives that said, well, I don't understand these bands. But, you know... Just put it out and see what happens. I like, it's like what Frank Zappa said, well, we started getting these people that said they understood. And say, well, when they said they understood, they started limiting and not allowing people to do stuff and wanting to play it safe. And he said, Frank said, it would have been better to have these executives that said, well, I don't understand it, but I'll let, I'll just see if it works. And, and, yeah. and he said that there's so many people that said they, they, that the idea of the, the manager saying they did understand it and they're going to control it, that we needed people who were more maybe open. And today we have people that are looking for metrics. And so they're looking for immediate success where a band used to be allowed maybe three records before they got dropped. Now, yeah. like if you don't really make it, you ain't, you're not going to get picked up. Unless you go the outside way, which the new way is to go on TikTok. Yeah. But it is kind of a one-hit wonder thing. It's not an album-oriented thing. And so you're kind of like, well, where's that? So that's the kind of rub is if you're a band that's trying to create records, albums, that's, the, that's kind of the pain point. Yeah, for sure. And I think about, so there's there's two thoughts that come up around that is one, you know, there's kind of the business side of it, right? Producers, they want to make money and, and they produce artists to, for everyone to do well. And so there was kind of the, I think of like the boy bands, right? From uh, the nineties that they, they were tailored to a certain style, a collective, right? Doing great fun music, easy to listen to. Perhaps, I mean, much of that is very successful music and people, it resonated with their audiences a lot because they became megastars in many cases. But it makes you wonder, like, is that the, if they would have done it their way, would it have been different? Or how might they have changed it if they would have done it on their, in their own artist's way, right? In that outside way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you kind of get the Beatles. The Beatles are the ultimate boy band. When they actually started, they were a boy band. Right, they're like the 1960s boy band. They were allowed the creativity to. By the time they ended by Abbey Road, they had become a progressive rock, really influential band that didn't even tour anymore. They they stopped touring. They only focused on their art. And you're like, well, how could you even do that? If you look at what the Beatles did by 1970, they weren't touring. Right, they were just writing songs and doing whatever they wanted making these big epic 
progressive rock type structures that were like, how, how can you do that? Like, but they did these things. You listen to the white albums, like that's not really commercial, but they made right. it commercial. They, there's a lot of stuff they did. It's very edgy, very, it's not popular. It's not what popular music was doing. You're like, why could they do that? Cause they were allowed the freedom to not be that boy band. They weren't kept as like, you got to stay in the help mode. They weren't kept in that place. That that's the thing I think that might be the problem today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a certain, like you kind of stay in that swim lane, right. Of what works versus what it, what it really speaks to about the story or the artist. And something that stands out that we were talking about is uh, the movie about Bob Marley's life came out this week, One Love. And um, it's such a great story about his life if you haven't caught that movie. And his family was involved in the production of it. And, you know, he had a message behind his music. It was peace. And he united people in this mm. enormous way. Yeah. Enormous way. And he never wavered from that. I mean, the, the story talks about that. And so he stayed true to himself regardless of what was going on around him, which was a variety of positive and negative things all at the same time, which is usually what is happening for someone when you're staying true to yourself, by the way, <laughs> it's not that it's not an easy yeah. street. And, um, but you have some followers <laughs> and fans in the process, usually that'll be cheering you on, but you can expect some adversarial things to show up. Uh, you yeah. expect, people try to, expect things. Well, there are people that expect you to kind of jump on, uh, certain bandwagons and if you stay true to yourself you know you might not it was like well you need to do this you need to do that he's like even people will expect you to to be something right but like well what they expect is like their vision of you not you right so that that's always the, the hard part because a lot of times with like if you think about it like if you have a friend like you knew them you know when they were 21 well, at 10 or 45, they're probably not the 21-year-old version of themselves. Imagine right. if you wanted them to stay at the 21-year-old version of themselves. That's what a lot of fans do. Yeah. They go and they, they want that person to stay who they were when they were 21 years old. It's like, well, how's that going to work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't represent the growth, right, that we're talking about that does evolve and change. The other thing about that, what you just mentioned, is there's – with our with our modern society, the thing that I think has diminished um, from that deep listening is we get this nanosecond speed of everything that's going on, right? We get no time to process a thought because the next thought's right there. Like whether it's social media, whether it's TV, whether it's radio, where we're at, it's just like boom, boom, boom. We're getting with this barrage of messaging coming at us. And I think what happens is sometimes artists are expected to be a voice to something. Right. Like I think of politics, which I'm not a politic person, but um, yeah, or they yeah. might they might need to represent a cause or a thing that might not be true to who they are. Right. Or maybe they've even been picked up by somebody like who has that kind of message that they're not aligned with. Right. These are all the things that um, go on in, in this world that we're talking about. And they have to manage yeah, yeah. manage those expectations um, that can also take you off course uh, and. And it's so judged, right? Like I think about just one person can say one thing and it gets taken out of context today. And all of a sudden someone's career is over, like literally over yeah. um, or diminished yeah. to a level that that maybe. And so I wonder how much in today's world that artists retreat a little bit internally from just like opening up that authenticity as much as they can because of the fear 
that if I get this wrong, I might get ousted for, I might not have a career. Well, I yeah, have a, you know. well, it's a very political system today. Cause like somebody said, if you're trying to just appeal to the masses, you're probably not going to be able to do like a, a Bob Dylan type of song, like the hurricane. Right. Yeah. Like, well, that, that's a very political song. And even Bob Dylan kind of in a Scorsese movie, when people started asking about his political social con con commentary songs, he seemed very uncomfortable mm -hmm. about being aligned with it, even though he has some very political songs. You know, the, the, throughout his career, he has had songs that people want to attach to to the civil rights movement, to different movements, the different things that like, you know, the, the hurricane song, a lot of people wanted to attach that to people who were wrongfully imprisoned. And so there, there's, and then Bob seemed to be like, oh, I don't know if I really want to be tied to that. I wrote the song because that's what I felt at the moment. Right. That's kind of what his response was. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be the advocate for that. I just felt that that's the moment it was like in, in the, he was kind of like in that flow state. He's yeah. have a flow state artist. And if he's in that moment, that's what the work is. If he's not in that moment, it's something else. Mm -hmm. And so like, you, you shouldn't attach everything to it. <laughs> yeah. Flow state is such an important component to what we're talking about in this deep inner artist world too, because, you know, I think about, I was thinking about this thought um, yesterday is like when someone is a songwriter, for example, and they put their pen to paper, uh, or maybe it's a keyboard these days, but I think most artists probably write on paper yeah, would be my guess if they're true, if they're doing their true thing, they're on paper. And so what inspires those words to come out? And what you just said was so important. It's the feeling, right? It's the feeling behind it. It's not like someone sits around as an artist and says, well, I'm thinking about creating this, you know, chart busting song. And let me think about the topics people care about and, and try to write to that. That's not how that creative process works. It's going in right into that state of flow, which I love talking about state of flow, um, that you, you pull out what comes up from within. Right. And that's, yeah. the, that's the artist signature really. It's when we can get into that deep state of flow that, and we do that in a variety of ways. Like sometimes it's meditation or prayer, or, um, sometimes it's other things that are not as popular, <laughs> but it can put someone in a deep, deep state of flow about their thinking and accessing parts of themselves that they are just letting open up and come out. Right. That's how the that's how an artist creates. And yeah, so state of flow is an important space for an artist so that they can cut out all that noise too to really create from what's in their heart and what's in their soul and in their spirit. <clears throat> and and it's it's a unique yeah. like I think about the sound of someone's voice. Not one of our voices are alive, right? They're all just like our fingerprints. Yeah. They're all created <laughs> unique. So yeah, go ahead. Well, it's like a stream of consciousness type of style of, of, of writing, which a lot of artists, like we we have multiple ways that we come at a song. They can be kind of birthed in different ways. And when I've talked to songwriters, you have the very elaborate kind of classical structure where you'll write it on the bars, very specific as a composer, like a Beethoven, a Chopin. You're being very direct about what you want. It's really controlled and you know exactly what you want to do. But then there's other type of thing that happens where you have the stream of consciousness, where you trust yourself. You've got these ideas that are kind of in your subconscious. There's stuff that's internal, it's stuff that's external. And then you, you just hit the record button and you just start going with your gut. 
And a lot of times artists will say, like, you know, I actually tried that Chopin Beethoven thing. But what I did when I did my flow state stream of consciousness was better. Yeah. I'm actually better at doing it kind of on the flow. I ad hoc just, and then I might go back and, and work on it and, and take little bits and pieces, you know, like a Neil Young was famous for putting down tapes along with like Zappa and they would go put down these long rehearsals and then he'd listen to them after maybe days after and then yeah. pick the nugget and say, Hey, this goes with that. This goes with that. But they let it happen. And then they went and looked at it and said, Oh, this is actually what it is. And so you kind of, if you let your, your, your mind kind of just go like a, a writer and they go into this kind of free flow. There are a lot of writers I've talked to say, well, my dialogue works better when I kind of do this free flow. I might have an idea what my character should be, and I've actually written it down. But if I actually do the, his conversational part of my character, I kind of free flow it. Mm -hmm. I have an idea what he should do, which I've written down in an outline, but I kind of let it happen. And then I'll, that might work better than what I planned. Something you you pointed out there is trusting yourself, right? And that's a hard that's an easier thing said than done. Um, to trust yourself, you have to to be okay with sitting in that uncomfortable space of what's what's going to come up, and and when it does, like you're sometimes this looks like um, a state of flow for those who might not know what that is it's just this where time elapses right you just go into a space where all of a sudden you come out and maybe hours or days have passed that you have been in a, a thought flow or a creative flow that you might not even be all that consciously aware of what's come out right and then that speaks to the process piece so there's the productivity side right of getting it done getting a, a song written or a music composition uh, done that is important to get it produced and published out into the world. But then there's this creation part to let and allow what is supposed to be there and to come back to it, right? And trust the process and trust yourself enough that that's part of your gifts to the world. That's part of who you are. And I think a lot of artists get stuck here. I think they hold back or they'll try to do too much uh, headspace revisioning instead of just let, yeah, that's a instead of trusting <laughs> what's really coming out of them right and you see that when you like how we see it when we're the audience is like i'm getting chills thinking about this right now is when someone is presenting their thing whether it's a guitar riff or a, a drum solo or whatever it is in the music world they're in that all of a sudden it, it just like gives us chills right like they, they, they transfer yeah. they transfer that energy out to their audience right that's there. what happens yeah, like the, what comes up goes out um and that is like the highest state you can get yeah well that thing is it's hard to understand that a lot of people get caught up in is like i am a big um a purveyor of the happy accident and what this is is uh, if you talk talk to songwriters, like there's a good example, like Elton John was talking about the production of like Yellow Book Road album. And he had this mansion and the whole band was just sitting in this room and they had their recorders set up and Bernie Taupin and, and Elton would write the song like that day. They, they, they come up with the lyrics and then they have the band there and then they run through it. And they would say like, you know what? M most of the time on the third or fourth take, those were the versions they kept. But if they took it to like the 10th take or the 11th take, it would ruin the song. There, John would, when John went on to say, he's like, as you start to go and do the later takes, you start to edit yourself. 
you start yes. to not trust yourself. You start to pull things out because it's, oh, that's too personal or that, or even if it's not perfect, the third or fourth take actually is a better song. And the, the back in the seventies and the eighties, people were more willing to accept that third or fourth take as it is and actually put it out the way it is than to go and try to make it perfect on the computer. Cause now the computer can go and correct it. And that's like the worst thing I've ever seen with, with the, the, the technology is we go and we wreck the song. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of art gets wrecked because you can't and maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. This is such an important piece that you're bringing up here because um, like I'll equate this to the photography world. So when I used to, um, you know, shoot photo shoots, I would shoot from my heart. I would shoot authentically what I saw. I didn't get too wor worried about the technical details, um, but I also controlled the environment a lot, like the lighting, for example. Um, but then like, and I was on film when I started, then we had this transition to digital, which I was a technologist. So that wasn't hard for me to, to make that transition, but you're right. Like what happens is now, um, and we have the selfie generation, right? That takes all these pictures all day long of themselves. Um, they, they're trying to reiterate all the time and get, make it better or, or change it or enhance it with all the filters that we didn't have back when you went live and back when you're in the, the period that you're talking about, it was so expensive to produce something back then. You didn't have the luxury of doing it 10 or 12 times over. It would have cost way too much, right? It would have been cost prohibitive today. We don't have that same issue. And so what I always like to say is your version one that's coming up is probably the most authentic version of what you're trying to do. So be careful how many times you edit your speech or your thing, whatever it is, your idea, um, because you're going to dilute it as you go, right? Just yeah. like when you open and close JPEG files, it dilutes it every time you do that. And, and it changes the image over time, right? That's the, and what you're talking about is so true because you got to trust yourself. And so that's why sometimes I know as an artist myself, I, I will say, okay, I'm going to open this thing up and speak from my heart and my soul. And it might be a little bit of a hot mess, but I'm okay with that. I'm always okay yeah. with that. Yeah. Because if I try to force it, like I like to speak from my heart and I don't like to speak from slides, for example, if someone <laughs> yeah. tells me I got to do a slide deck, I'm like, oh my gosh, the slide deck is going to, it's going to take some of the authenticity off of me when I have to present that way. It dilutes so, the focus, yeah, right? It dilutes the focus, right? Because then they're looking at that and they're not really paying attention to what you said. Yeah. And it's splitting their attention. It's splitting the audience's attention and my attention too. So the message might not be as powerful. It might not be as authentic. So I think that's so true. Um, when, you know, if I, if I, as a, as a high performance coach, what I would say to any artist out there is go with your instinct first, because your instinct is there as your internal guide and governor. And whether you call it instinct, trusting your gut, if you call it your spirit, the Holy spirit, whatever it is for you that you're calling it, it is there to guide you in whatever it is you're supposed to be doing, but you got to tune in. And I mean, really tune into that station <laughs> that's meant for you to hear to, to really process it out the way it's intended. And so I think that's such an important point that you bring up is like the more versions you take of something, the less it's going to be, the less it's probably going to resonate with your audience because it's going to become more scripted as you go. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I do live podcasts because I tried doing heavily edited, uh, you know, with like music and special effects. And then I was like, well, that's just a gimmick that really doesn't 
really focus on what I want is a heart to heart talk that's real and authentic and vulnerable. And it's like, I don't care about how many ums there are. I don't got to edit out the ums. It was like, let, let, let's have a talk. Right. And, you know, there's some people that are so into the perfections. Well, you know, you need to cut this down to like 15 minutes. Well, you know, not everything's going to happen in 15 minutes. You might just be warming up. That's and right. it's kind of like with, with, like with art, like with music, a lot of times if you should, when you first start, like I would just run tape first 15 minutes, I might be working on an idea coming up with the theme, coming up with the melody, coming up with the parts by like a half hour into my, my rehearsal, by the, like the last 10 minutes of that half hour, usually what happens is the song has gelled and it's actually, I've actually kind of put it together. And it, it, by the time you get to that, that full tape, the last 10 minutes of the tape is the idea, is, is the concept, is the song. And because I've kind of run through it and, and made it happen. And, and that kind of creative process was very common back in the day because bands would record live. They'd just be in the studio and the bass player, the drummer, the keyboard, they're all in the same room. They're not just overdubbing parts from different places and different points in time. They're playing together and they're tracking it that way. And, and the way we work in music today, you know, somebody could be in London, somebody could be in Germany, somebody could be in their basement. And so yeah. sometimes it's, it's being done kind of not together and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sound the same as something from 74. <laughs> yeah, there's that synergy, right? There's a synergy that happens and it locks in when you're together, when there's more than one person. Um, the other thing that you just called out that I think is important is the moment you know, right? That intersection where it locks in for you. Like we all know when we're there, right? It's like, boom, like I think of Olympic athletes or just that performance edge, right? That says, this is it this i can feel it i know my audience can feel it this is where we're going with this and sometimes it's trusting that piece too right um but that's such an important call out to when you know you should go more with that knowing right and not yeah. start questioning yourself or doubting and this is where creative insecurity flows in pretty heavy for some people I would use this example of so when I we used to shoot sessions of photography, sometimes I would be working with, a, you know, a, a, a subject and I worked with people. So it might be a family, it might be kids, it might be a lot of different scenarios. But I would know, like I might get there in the first three seconds, the first three shots I take with my camera, I'm there. I know I've got the shot. Like got I know it. I've got it. But now I have to keep doing this 30 minute session or hour session so that someone gets the experience of the session. But I knew right as we shot number three that that we didn't need to do any more work. That was it. Right? Yeah, that yeah. was it. Yeah. It's a trusting <laughs> that knowing. And almost always, almost always, that would be the image that they would pick because it was yeah. the most authentic, the most real, the most, you know, ready to go. Because the yeah, more you start forcing it, you know, if you start forcing it, then it doesn't feel right. You know, that's yeah. like when you kind of need to know there's like a diminishing returns. Cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a programmer. Um, I'm a, in my software designer in my day life. And it's a diminishing return from sitting, like if you sit working on a problem for eight hours, usually what happens is like it, it, you don't do it right. Like if you, if you sit, if you take a break, if you walk away and then you come back with a fresh set of eyes, there's a, there's a just sitting there for eight hours because the boss wants you to be in front of the thing for eight hours, that doesn't mean that it's good. This means that they could track where you are. It doesn't mean you could actually have gotten it done in a half hour. 
it doesn't yeah. take eight hours. It, it does this the, the the length of time to do it doesn't actually equate to what you're doing, and that's the problem. Where I think a lot of people is they think they they they're measuring like the wrong thing. They're not looking at like what is it that you did. Like you just said, like in the first three three things you got it. So yes. the, the the measurement is like oh the thirty minutes is is the measure. It's like well that's not really the measure. It's like did yeah. you get it? That's the measure. <laughs> yeah, this is such a this is such a fascinating point because our society measures everything in productivity by how much time we spend on it. The more time we invest in it, the mass and mastery does take time. I, I would say that I agree, mastery yeah. takes time. But what we're talking about is the expectation that something should take a long time. And this is why I love coaching so much. Like kind of back to where we started this conversation is when you work with a coach, the depth and breadth of experience that you're getting in the time you spend together, you're going to, you can go in so many different directions that would literally take hundreds of hours to go and connect with all these different thoughts and processes and people and industries, whatever it is you're, you're after. Sometimes that all comes together because of the, the experiential nature of having, you know, I, in my world, I've had over 5,000 one-on-one conversations with somebody about their life. And that is a lot of detail to be able to crisscross insight from and and also experience industry experience and oh if this worked over here what would happen if it worked over here and so it doesn't take as much time right it's time is not the measurement yeah. it's it's the value that comes out of it and that's another thing i think we think well we need to keep going because we have all this extra time we'll repurpose that time and do something more uh wonderful with it because if you know you've got it then stick with that feeling or thought because that's probably what's guiding you forward in whatever activity that you're working in and to give it more time. Like I think of Photoshop, we like, you can keep enhancing someone, right? We keep airbrushing someone up. They, they all, all of a sudden don't look like yourself. There's plenty of proof yeah. of that every day, right? That plays out with complaining <laughs> <laughs> and instead of, and people want authenticity. I just want to say with COVID, everyone got disconnected. We want connection. We want authenticity. We want to hear from the real story, the real person. We want to see the struggle. We want to see the, the ugly, right? That uh, shows up yeah. with our battle wounds. And if you try to put too much, um, if you try to put too much makeup on that or try to revise it too much, it just, it gets lost and it, and you will not be as authentic with whoever you're speaking to. Yeah. I kind of, I always loved, um, Neil Young kind of discussed this with his style. If you think about like when he does something like harvest versus something he does with crazy horse. When he did like harvest, he's like in Nashville trying to get it perfect. And it's very, you know, he, he did the vocals. He made sure his voice was like in the right pitch and everything. But when he played with Crazy Horse, sometimes he would have his voice in a very vulnerable pitch that was like not perfect. It's like it's kind of the happy accident embodied in the work in Crazy Horse. It's, it's kind of punky. It's got a punk aesthetic. It's not perfect. It's sometimes it's attic not in the, in the same key or a little off key or a little ramshackle. But a lot of the critics, when they heard it, they're like, this is really authentic. This is really pulls on the heartstrings because it feels like he it's real, it's emotional. And that's where people make the mistakes. Like trying to make something totally perfect kind of feels false. Doesn't feel like it's like you put too much makeup on. It's like, it's not authentic. It doesn't feel real. But if you allow yourself to have that vulnerability in your work, then people would say, well, that's, that person's not trying to make an infomercial. That's real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a difference. There is a difference in that. 
the other thing I would say, um, you know, as we think about the artists, right? When we create, remember, just, it's just like high performance. Most people, like we take 100% of the population, only about 5% of the population and maybe one to 2% are high performance, right? Those, those best in class producers, whatever their genre is. Then we have about 15% that's in the growth mindset, right? But the rest of the 85%, they're not even anywhere in that spectrum. Mm. So when we apply that to an artist, like when we create something, we're creating it from a place of artistry. And the audience is coming from 85% non-artistry, you know, yeah. when we think about the ratio. So for some, and that's why, uh, this is why reviews sometimes shouldn't matter because they don't, they may have never had any orientation to how this would get created or what the thought leadership or process or inspiration was behind something or never even experienced it. So it's an important point uh, to think about when you like that relationship between the creator and the audience, uh, because they're, they're coming at it from two very different lenses and how they're seeing it. Yeah. It's like one thing I remember, um, I'm a big Prince fan. And I would love to go see him at Paisley Park, his like house, which is also his performing studio and everything. And you, and back in the day, like there was a time period where I was in Minneapolis, you could go see him perform. Wow. And he had a habit of when you go to see him in his house, he wasn't going to just do Purple Rain. He, he would go do these kind of power trio things or these jazz fusion things. And a lot of the, like the hardcore fans, we were like, that's great. And then we get some people like, yelling purple rain is like you know he's really not going to do purple rain tonight because this is his house and he's doing whatever he wants right and yeah. i appreciate that that's where his head's at because I, I actually wanted to hear him not just do purple rain i wanted to hear his artistry kind of from that flow state and he was doing all this really intricate stuff and it's like unreleased stuff and i'm like wow that's really cool that that he had that freedom to do that in his own house, he would do that. But he even did that on the road sometimes. He wouldn't, he's like, I'm not playing Purple Rain tonight. He would actually tell the crowd he wasn't going to play it. There was a period where he wouldn't do it. And uh, people would get ticked off. But it was like, you know, his head's not in it. That's yeah. not where he is right now. So he's not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, I think you just coined a new quote there, uh, Phantom, that, you know, this is my house. I'm going to create what I'm designed to create. And that's the true mark of an artist. Yeah, I just think people, you know, it's not really, I don't think that that's being self-absorbed. I think that's just knowing where you are. Mm -hmm. And you can, I think you can be, you know, your soul can be more satisfied if you accept where you are instead of trying to be a people pleaser. Yes. Because again, it's like the law of attraction. That, like you might have people fall off because they had an expectation. But if you kind of go where, where your heart and your soul and your spirit sending you, then it will open other doors. Yeah. And you know, those doors might be scary. It might be different, but it's it's a progression. And I'd rather be on a progression than be in a kind of stable state, but it's boring. Yeah. The boundaries, <laughs> and you you hit it right on the head. Like it can sometimes seem selfish. And I would say from a self-care perspective, one, any human always needs to work from a place of taking care of yourself first because you can't give and serve at the highest levels unless you're doing that first. Once you have that established, you gotta have lots of fortified boundaries. And I will say fortified is important. You know, you gotta have strong boundaries 
because otherwise people will push you and, and tell you to do it this way or that way. And to come back to your authentic self, that's that's your true self. Right. And it's not selfish. It is selfless when you show up as your authentic self, because there's eight billion people on the planet and you are made unique by your fingerprints, by who you are. Some of us have the same journeys that we travel but we're, none of us are the same. None of us have the fam same family structure, the same life experiences. We may have similarities, but every one of us is on our own journey. And it's so important to stay true to that. Yeah, it's, it's so important to do that. And one of the last things I would ask is, when I asked the guests this, this new series of questions is, what are three things about yourself that you think people wouldn't expect that they would find interesting? I think one is people make assumptions about who we are just, you know, having a conversation and um, probably most people would not expect the wide variety of genres of music that I have been to concerts with and listened to because I appreciate all artists and, and all genres. And so I might just surprise you with my concert ticket stub collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing is I pivot. So Sometimes I make decisions fast and I pivot fast and that isn't always understood by the people around me, but I know I'm true to myself and that's what I'm always checking in with. And I can't check in with other people's governors and what's true for them. I can only just be true to me. And so that's something that I think um, if you are in and around me enough, you're like, oh yeah, she's doing her thing again. <laughs> that thing she does, that doesn't make sense to anyone else. And then I yes. think I I live in a place of possibilities. Like I have never, I've never had through my teachers and growing up um, a lack of self-confidence, not because I'm overly confident or arrogant, but because I just had great teachers who said, anything is possible. Anything is possible. We see blue ribbons. We see gold medals. We see, I always had these amazing teachers in my life that we did not have the luxury of limited thinking. And that built confidence quietly, but I really do think anything's possible. And I think that's true for my clients. So when we're working together, you can throw out the most wild, crazy idea. And I'm going to go, I believe we can do that. Let's do it. Right. Let's yeah. go for it. Let's see where the road takes us. And I think those are the three things I would call out. I think that's a real important thing because that, that, that a lot of times you stop yourself. As soon as you say, well, you can't do it or you're not going to do it. Well, then you're not going to do it. Right. Yeah. So if you if you put these ceilings, a lot of them are just glass ceilings that you put on yourself. So if you can put the possibility that, yeah, I can do it. And re regardless of what anybody around you thinks, well, you know, you can't do that. Like if you start to believe in what is possible, it will actually start to happen. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, it's like doubt. It just doesn't doesn't help. You know, criticism is different than doubt. For like sure. getting the constructive criticism and lessons learned that's different but thinking you can't do it is not the kind of mindset you should have <laughs> yeah and it really is about dispelling the fears right doubt comes from fear and it's about overriding that and recognizing when it shows up what it what it's keeping you from right what it's keeping you from because so many dreams get lost right there in that that um crosshair of doubt it stops a lot of people yeah, yeah so many people get stopped, you know, dead in their tracks because like they just they just don't think it's possible. And it's, and it's like it's very it's sad to see that. But I'm glad there are people like yourself out there want to remind people like we have your creativity playbook.com. 
what happens if you uh, somebody clicks on that? Maybe you can tell us that before we leave. So that's my website. You can get in contact with me. What I always like to do is if this conversation has resonated with you is we go into a deeper conversation to see what's possible for you. And that's my gift, right? That's why I'm here showing up serving. And sometimes that means we might go into a deeper working engagement. Sometimes it's just a life-changing conversation that both of us are impacted by. So I invite you to connect um, and ask for that. If you haven't sat down and talked about your life and your dreams in a while, or if ever with someone, it might just be time to dust those off and really um, kind of refresh where you are and where you want to go. That's awesome. I want to thank you again for being a guest on the Family Life That Goes podcast. We've been live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. We are also going to be on all the major podcast platforms where you can listen to or watch podcasts later today. And uh, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Appreciate it. And have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.